This is Chapter 83 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We're all about making ourselves smarter this week. First up, we'll learn about how the political polling process works. Then we'll discover a key to ensuring we have enough money in retirement. And finally, we'll find out how an author is tackling the lack of women in science and tech jobs. If you've ever wondered how pollsters come by their information, wonder no more. CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys, Anthony Salvanto, has the answers in his new book, Where Did You Get This Number? A Pollster's Guide to Making Sense of the World. And a good thing, too, with Election Day just a few days away. Our Steve Scott got all the details. You know, a question I like to ask every author we talk to, why did you write this book? Why this book? At this time, well, uh, you know, the joke I make, Steve, is that the whole book came from a, a deeply flawed estimate. Um, no, I don't mean 2016. I mean <laughs> that I would actually have time to write it over the last year. Uh, but it was it, it was fun to do, and I felt I felt it was important to do. I, I wrote it because I wanted to take people behind the numbers, inside the numbers, along with me as we we pollsters try to understand what it is that people want, why they think the way they think. I get so many questions from folks. Who are these people that disagree with me? How many people are there that agree with me? And and like I said in the title, where, where did you get this number? How do you do these polls anyway? And I wanted to take people inside that process of discovery and understanding because people are really interesting. The, the numbers are just numbers, but the stories they tell, the people that they describe are really interesting to me. And I, I wanted to share that, especially at this time where, you know, our politics, there's a, obviously a lot of arguments. There's a lot of a lot of misunderstanding that goes on. And so I wanted to sort of bring the perspective of the pollster into that and show people how it is we go about trying to figure all that out. You know, I I think our listeners really might be intrigued by this because, you know, especially this time of year with the midterms coming up, there is always something about a new poll says this or a new poll indicates that Mm -hmm. before we get into the nuts and bolts of polling and how it works. Why is polling important? Why is it important that we know what other people think about an issue or political race? Well, I think that in a democracy, we need to know what other people think. In a a large sense, you know, democracy depends on us understanding, having a dialogue, having a negotiation with the other people around us. You know, you can you can try to persuade someone. If you're going to try to persuade someone to see your point of view, you probably ought to know why it is they think what they think, why it is that they disagree with you. Or, or at the very least, you ought to know whether your your views are, you know, in the majority, in the minority, and whether or not other people find common ground with you. I think polling does all of that. And the other very sort of time time-worn way that pollsters have often said polling is important is that it also provides a check, no matter who's in office, against whether against what politicians say. And politicians can say, well, the people want this, or, you know, I, I think this. But, but you can go to the people with a scientific survey and find out what they actually say and they actually want. And so it provides, in many ways, uh, often a, a way for people to have a voice 
beyond the ballot box, to have a voice in the regular conversation uh, that is that is what democracy is about. You know, I've always understood why campaigns might do internal polling. They want to know how they're shaping up against their opponent. Why do you think there's been such an attraction to the news media to report on polls? I, I think that often we see a number and it's a quick story. It's it's often you you can think that that number tells you the whole story, but oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes you want to go beyond that horse race, beyond a single number, and try to get a larger understanding of what people are doing or thinking. And, you know, I use the, the example in the book. I mean, let's let's go right after it in, in 2016. A lot of people said to me, well, you know, we, we some people thought Hillary Clinton was sure to win, was going to win what happened in the polls. And I said, well, if you just looked at the horse race, you know, and Hillary Clinton marginally up in, in say, at least nationally, maybe you thought that. But look beyond those numbers. And what you saw was a lot of Republicans in the polls. They were telling us that at the time they were a little bit on the fence. They were reticent to support then-candidate Trump. Well, they were still conservatives, and they were still Republicans, and they weren't really considering Hillary Clinton. Should we have been surprised that ultimately they came home to their party's candidate? Well, I assert that no, we should not have been surprised. That's one example that I mean uh, in terms of looking beyond the horse race. You do, you get beyond that top line and you see the kinds of people who are in play, the kinds of people who are considering one candidate or another. And when you see that range of possibilities, you're certainly less surprised by what happens in elections or what happens in, in public opinion. Um, so what, again, one of the reasons I wrote the book was trying to take people beyond that sort of horse race and oftentimes uh, in, in the reporting go beyond and tell the, the broader story. You know, I, w- I was actually going to save that whole question of what happened in 2016 for a little bit later, because uh, let's face it, it's kind of the elephant in the room. Oh, yeah, talk- I know. Or donkey in, the ro- <laughs> donkey in the room, depending on which uh, side of the political no, spectrum you're on. Just got to take it on. But, you know, I, and I know you, as a, as a professional pollster, have probably been asked more times than you'd like, what happened in 2016? Were the polls, quote, unquote, wrong well you know i often say that the polls were a lot better than most folks seem to think but i have to recognize why it is that people were still surprised so i do that get that question a lot the national polls were actually very good in many respects they were better than they'd been in a number of previous presidential years but the national polls didn't tell the right story in other words the election was decided in the electoral college the election was decided by Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin swinging. And if you were just looking at the national polls, well, you missed that story. And quite frankly, I wish there'd been more polling in some of those uh, key states, what turned out to be key states. Well, what's the lesson going forward from, from that? If you look right now in 2018, you still see a lot of polls that are doing national numbers. You see a national generic ballot and happens to show the Democrats up. Well, here again, is that really telling you the story you need to know? It might be accurate nationally. Maybe people do prefer Democrats, but the race is taking place in a handful of swing congressional right. districts. The race is taking place in maybe 60 out of 435 CDs. 
So, again, what is it that we're measuring and should should we make sure we're looking in the right place? So the lesson I draw forward for people out of 2016 is follow the polls that are concentrated in the places that could swing and you'll probably get a better sense of what's going on if what you want to know is, you know, who's who's going to win. When you look at a, at a lot of the polls from 2016 that had Hillary Clinton projected to win the popular vote, well, guess what? She did. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, is it even physically possible or fiscally possible to do a poll on what really matters in a presidential race? And that is the Electoral College. I mean, that just seems like it'd be impossible to try to sort that out in in a poll. It would take, I guess, hundreds of separate polls melded into one. So you got it. The poll. I don't want to say you, you all pollsters who had said Hillary Clinton would would win. It was right. She won the popular vote. But it's just there's no way you could have figured, as you say, you know, this state would go that way, Michigan or Wisconsin or or whatever. Well, we did state polling. And when we went back late in the campaign to Florida, to Ohio, that was certainly where the campaigns were going. So we were going to go poll there. And we did see movement toward Donald Trump at the time. So I think that, you know, to your point about polling and resources that's a thing that I think I think going forward, I think going into the next next presidential election, I do anticipate people going more state by state again, as we did. But uh, very often, even when we said, you know, Donald Trump has, you know, a path, he's got he's got this path It might go through the upper Midwest. It might go through the West. When we said that, it still oftentimes was kind of lost in this larger picture, especially with the national polls. I suspect that. Going forward, you will see more concentration on those swing places. And again, you know, good, just carrying this forward to, to 2018, Steve, you know, our current battleground tracker for the midterms now looks in the particular swing districts and we're putting out seat estimates for where things stand in these midterms. But again, it's somewhat informed by the past and trying to go exactly where the, the race matters, even though it does it does take some somewhat you know heavier lifting and a little more uh, a little more statistical modeling. But you know we've got to do it because that's our job as pollsters is to tell people the stories that that they need to know. We're talking with CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys Anthony Salvato. His book. Where did you get this number? When I first saw that, I wasn't sure. By number, do you mean fifty two percent for so and so? Or my phone number. Where did you get my phone number, <laughs> well, Anthony it, you know, I, It was my attempt at being clever, Steve. I don't know it if I pulled All right. Well, then. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wonder, though, has changing technology, fewer and fewer people. Look out in our newsroom right now at some of the younger folks in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Haven't had a landline since they were in their parents' house in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. More people are on cell phones now. How do you keep up? Have, have you had to adjust how you reach out to people to get a, a fair uh, estimate of who is out there? Yes. And and I'm, I'm thank you for the question because it's it, it, a lot of people have a lot of sort of misconceptions about how we do this. Pollsters haven't explained it well enough. That's another back to your first question. Why did you write the book is, is I was trying to explain this in language that anybody could just pick up i hope and and get no statistical you know no charts no not a lot of (laughs) graphs etc here's the thing um 
People don't use landlines anymore. You're correct. Pollsters who do phone polls, including us, call predominantly cell phones now. And in many ways, that has been really a, a saving part of the of, of the phone polling business because we can reach people on cell phones. We do 70 odd percent of our of our completes are on cell phones. And yet it is harder to reach people no matter what kind of phone they're on. As you can imagine, your phone rings, it's your cell phone, if that's your primary number, you're out and about, you're at the grocery store, you're not going to have time necessarily to take the poll, we'll have to call you back some other time. It is more labor-intensive now to complete the poll. It is more labor-intensive now and takes dialing more random phone numbers than it did for pollsters 20 or 30 years ago, for certain. Is that literally how they do it? There are people or computers or whatever that are dialing just randomly picked phone numbers? Yes. The 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 phone numbers, there's a large bank of of interviewers. They all are getting numbers where the the last couple of digits on there are randomly assigned, uh, randomly dialing throughout the country so that every part of the country has a chance to be represented in the sample. And I you know, I should add, for all the descriptions that I just made about the difficulties of doing phone polls, one of the things that we've relied heavily on is now going online. Again, to the point that more people are online, people have, you know, obviously they, they're using the internet, and we need to go where people are. That's part of our mission as, as pollsters. So what we do now is we often have, we have large samples, large panels of people who've agreed to take polls online. It's at their convenience. They get the poll. They can take it at their desk at work, uh, maybe during a break. They can take it at home. They can take it on their smartphone with the interface right there on the on the face of their of their smartphone. It's quick. It's easy. It's private. We do the selecting. We we do with our, our partners at, at YouGov. We do the selecting so that it's not just some you know opt uh, you know where people are just sort of flooding to us. We we're picking the sample so that it's representative. That's the key. So that it's representative of the public. But that's a way that we use technology now to match where people are spending their time, and we found it very effective that we can get a good representative sample doing things that way. And again, like I said, convenient, private for people, um, and that's been a big, big help. You use that word representative. People might wonder, how can you do a poll where you talk to 1,000 people and claim to get the pulse of a country of 330 million people. Right. And it's, that's the question. It's a great question. One that pollsters still get. And because it seems like it's just a small, small percentage, of course, of, of the entire country. And people always ask, well, you didn't call me. And you didn't call any of the people I know. And that's a very fair question because all of us take and learn from our experiences. Here's the thing. No one is entirely special in regards to the things we're measuring in the poll, which means we can find somebody like you or like enough that they would answer the questions 
the same way that you would. So if you're a Republican, there's 40 odd million other voters out there like you in that regard. Similar if you're a Democrat, me or a man, you're a woman, you're uh, whichever age you are. You know, think about the things you share in common with millions of other people. We've selected one of those folks and that person is going to answer the questions and think. I mean, remember, they're, they're sort of broad questions, right? Is the economy good or bad? Do you approve or disapprove of the president? So while everyone is unique in their personal experiences and how they came to their opinions, there are opportunities for us pollsters to find somebody else who will represent you in the poll. And so when we assemble that sample, think of it as a microcosm of the country. The example I use in the book is like my grandmother's bolognese sauce. You know, as nice as it would have been to, to eat the whole vat of it, you got a bowl. And that bowl was enough for you to know whether it tasted good or bad. You didn't have to drink the whole thing. You got a sample of it. How do you get your sample of people? Are there some people who just plain don't make the cut? Maybe they're willing to participate, but for some reason, I mean, are they so atypical that they just don't fit into the pattern of the country? Oh, the atypical people will be in there too. Mm -hmm. But by virtue of the fact that they are atypical, they will not dominate the poll. When you put together that microcosm of the country, that sample, you almost really by definition are going to not see as many of things that are atypical simply because there just aren't that many out there. And you're going to tend towards seeing what is typical or at least seeing in proportion uh, in your sample to what is out there in the uh, in the larger in the larger, you know, universe and larger, larger population. Look, you know, a lot of times we look around us and we say, well, I, I saw this, you know, 60% of the people in the poll say something that I wouldn't agree with. And no one I know, no one around me thinks that. Well, we often end up around and talking to more people who are like us than not, more in more ways than we realize. You probably live in a neighborhood of people that, you know, might be of your you know, same kind of group or same kind of opinions, but oftentimes we need to realize that it's, you know, it's a big country, like you said, 300 million people, and there's a lot of different mixes of folks out there. And that's one of the things that a poll does is it gives you a chance to be represented, but also all those other folks. Just a few minutes left. You're a numbers guy, a statistics guy, but I wonder when you do your surveys, your polling, words matter. The specific words that you use when you ask a question. Talk about the importance of of using the right words and, and making sure that the people being surveyed understand exactly what they are being asked. Yeah, and that's so important because as a as a practice, pollsters focus just as much on those words as they do on any of the sampling statistics that, that we've been talking about. If I ask you, Steve, <clears throat> how concerned are you about a volcano eruption in New York? You know, you, you might say, wait, how concerned? Doesn't that imply I should be, that there's some degree of concern existing there? Okay, well, well, now I'm thinking, well, how, how should I be? What do you know? <laughs> um, but suppose I ask that a little differently. If I say, are you concerned about a volcano eruption in New York? Yes or no. Now you have a clear place to go to say no. And if you are concerned for whatever reason, we're, we're here in New York. I hope that's that is not the case. But if, if you do say yes, now I can follow that up and I can ask you to which degree you are concerned. So that's a, a subtle but important little uh, example 
of the way in which you can craft a question and perhaps end up with measurement error if you don't do it correctly. You know, if you if you give people a range of options that fit the way they might be thinking, if you structure a question using a phrase a certain way, you want to be as neutral as possible. Here's another example. Um, you know, do you think the economy is good or bad? That gives you a place to go. You can get degrees out of that, um, but you wouldn't simply ask how good is the economy because that gives you a uh, leads you into uh, into one particular answer. That's thing. That's the kind of thing that pollsters wrestle with all the time. You know, one of the things that I have always wondered about polls: human nature says we want to be with the winner, so or the or the person who's going to win. So, you know, maybe I, I support candidate B over candidate A, but polling says, well, candidate A is actually uh, projected to, you know, win 70 to 30 percent over candidate B. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not, I don't want to go with the losing horse. Maybe I should go ahead and vote for candidate A. How do polls manipulate voting? I think uh, that if you got, you know, three or four studies uh, together on this, you might get four or five different ways to, to look at that at that question. There are studies that, or there are ideas out there that, uh, to your point, that people will see that their candidate is winning and want to get on a bandwagon. But on the other hand, some say, well, no, that means that people will look at that and go, well, I don't need to vote. So it'll, it'll all be taken care of. So which way does that run? The truth is we don't really know. It could be offsetting. On the other hand, you might find people who see their candidate or their idea trailing and either say, we well, get discouraged. Well, we're not going to win, as you described. But what about the person who roots for the underdog and says, well, no, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go make that change. I'm going to go talk to somebody. I'm going to try to change their opinion and I'm going to go out and vote so that the underdog catches up. So you could imagine that same effect going on and perhaps they cancel each other out. You know, all of it, I think, comes back around to use the polling information, not just for who's winning or for losing, but as kind of a blueprint for if you want to go have a discussion, you want to go try to persuade somebody of an idea or just have a better dialogue with folks in in a democracy. You know, we've got that argument going on. We've got that debate going on. And there's never really a, a a foregone conclusion about winners and losers anyway until actually election day it really is a, a perfect read as we head into the midterm elections where did you get this number a pollster's guide to making sense of the world it's available everywhere from simon and schuster a division of cbs uh, anthony salvano we appreciate you coming in uh, talking about the book uh, cbs news director of elections and surveys i think it's really great if if people have questions about polling. The book is easy to find. It's really an easy read. A lot of fun stuff in here, too. It's not all just hard numbers. If people are curious about polling, where did you get this number? Uh, I think folks should check out the book. So thanks for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate those nice, those kind words. And this is just, uh, this is so much fun. Thank you. In her new book, Ambition Redefined, career coach Catherine Solman tackles the big and difficult question facing a lot of women nowadays. Should I quit work to raise my kids or care for my aging parents? I'm not giving anything away when I tell you her answer is a resounding N-O. She recently stopped by our studios to explain how women can do both. 
this is a book that a lot of women have been waiting for, but they may not have known that they were waiting for the information, the advice that you set out in here. You kind of tell us it's okay not to pursue the traditional corporate path, which I think a lot of women get caught up in. And I love if I can read just this quick line that you put in here. As you put it, women who choose professional fulfillment and financial security and less lofty, highly visible ways are not weak, lacking ambition, or letting down the sisterhood. So that being said, how do you define ambition? I define an ambitious woman as any woman who finds the work that fits and funds her life alongside caregiving for children and aging parents and really having an eye to financial security for herself and for her family and all generations of her family. Tell us a little bit about what a woman can do to to do that. The, the interesting thing, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book, is because there are so many women still today who think that the only way to work um, is the traditional corporate path. More than full-time, big commute, travel around the world, never see your kids except when they get up for a few minutes or, you know, w- right when they're going to bed. And... That is just not the case anymore. Um, Today, there are actually six different ways to work in a flexible way if you want to get a paycheck from an employer. And um, and that includes a flexible full-time job. So women don't think that a full-time job would ever be flexible, but it is. It can be. Um, It can be flexible in terms of Um, schedule or where you work. Um, There are now a lot more part-time jobs. um, And women tend to think, oh, if I'm going to have a part-time job, I have to work in a doctor's office or at a local retail store. And um, that's not true. There are, you know, many professional part-time jobs now. There is telecommuting, which means um, working outside your employer's office. And um, that could be 100% telecommuting. There are an awful lot of jobs now that are advertised right from the get-go as, as work from home. Um, or it could be that you are telecommuting a couple of days a week um, and, and also spending time in your employer's office. Uh, there are job shares, and um, that's the least common um, form of flexibility. But if you can somehow make that work um, it's, and find the right partner, that's a, that's a terrific option. There's a compressed work week, um, which really works well if you typically are working 40 hours a week, um, and you can compress all of your hours into four days. Um, and then there are the more independent options like occasional freelance work or, um, you know, starting your own practice as a marketing consultant or whatever. And then the seventh is being your own boss and all the entrepreneurial options that are out there. You've spoken with a lot of working women to come up with this book and your own experiences yourself. How hard or how simple is it to ask for this flexibility? The issue really is, how do you go about asking for flexibility? And I've been coaching women for more than 15 years on this very issue. And women will come to me all the time and they'll say, well, you know, I left my job because it just wasn't possible to work in a flexible way. 
And then I dig a little deeper and I ask them how they asked. And 99.9% of the time, they lobbed a very simple ask, something like, uh, do you think it would be okay if I worked from home on Fridays? And that's, you know, part of a conversation that they're having with their boss about 50 other things. And the simple answer to that is no. You know, boss is busy. They're not really um, thinking about it. Um, and so women really need to make a professional pitch for flexibility as if they're pitching a client and really think about, you know, what are all the the ways that this has to work? If I manage people, how am I going to manage people if I'm not in the office? How are the staff meetings going to be handled? What kind of communication tools am I going to use? Um, am I going, to, do I want um, a change in my hours or a change in where I work? You know, and you have to put all of that down into a professional proposal so that your employer knows that nothing's going to fall through the cracks and that you're really trying to dot all the I's and cross the T's. And also to show them that there are benefits to you doing this. You know, maybe cutting out a long commute several days a week is going to help you get to back burner projects or changing your hours is going to allow you to uh, service uh, clients that are in other time zones. So also talking about how that is going to benefit the employer um, is going to help your case. And when you do a professional pitch, 80% of the time you're going to get it. And all this talk of flexibility, I think, kind of plays into what I took away from your book as being the golden rule, which is don't leave the workforce. Don't. Don't leave the workforce. And I think that um, there probably are a lot of women who would agree with me, um, but that's a little bit um, of a you know hot wire because a lot of women feel very strongly that they should be home with young children um, and that that's the right thing to do. But what I always say is that you know if you feel that you need to be home with your children twenty four seven those very same children could be the ones that you burden later in life if you run out of money. Right, and you set out some very clear, concrete, and I thought shocking examples of the earning power that's lost and what can happen in the long run, and also make a very good argument for, because I've heard it from my friend's family who they think that leaving because daycare is so expensive, that it just makes sense to not work. And they, you have a very clear example in the book that kind of sets out that even if you're putting away a lot of money towards it, the money that you're still earning, if you're saving that towards retirement and stuff, it really can add up to a lot of money. Because you say that the average is 12 years that women leave the workforce when they care for kids, right? Right. And every year out, it um, you forfeit up to four times your salary. So 12 years, average of 12 years out, that's 144 paychecks that aren't, aren't saved and invested. And you don't necessarily have to save everything that you earn. And it's, you know, that's difficult for a lot of people. But, you know, there's a very simple um, investment fundamental, which is the power of compounding. And even when you save a little bit, over time, it just keeps snowballing and snowballing. 
and that's what that's what women forget about and you probably know people in your life i know lots of people who never had any big corporate career i'm but they have saved millions of dollars and they've and that has been just from having this you know really strong feeling about always you know always saving and so you know women can have a part-time job and it can still add up to a significant source of retirement income it feels like we should know this women who consider themselves smart and savvy and they can run a household but they seem to fall down in this one area we don't get taught about personal finance in college you know it's it's certainly something that we should be taught um and unfortunately it's still 1952 in a lot of households um even women who would describe themselves as more independent will still defer to a partner um to handle all the all the finances but you know there're just too many you never knows in life and you know one of them that i i think that women aren't really thinking about and men um but women especially because they take um at least one costly caregiving break um is the fact that our parents are living longer than we than they ever thought that they would and even if they were affluent at one time by the time they get to the point where um they need round the clock care and it's you know in many areas $25 an hour it just you know any kind of savings um can really dissipate at that point and a lot of um our parents are going to run out of money which makes a, a double whammy um for a double whammy reason for women to stay in the workforce and also women tend to live longer as well so that financial burden lasts even longer right women tend to live longer earn less and save less and you know one of the things that uh women don't realize um is that if you don't have 10 years of earnings credits you don't get social security wow and there are plenty of women out there who you know go to college work for a couple of years leave the workforce when they have children and delay getting back um or you know some don't don't go back um and you need those 10 years so is this really about women taking control of their own financial lives totally yes you can't you you really have to make sure that you're not delegating your financial health to another human being because so many things can happen you know that person can get sick um and not you know be disabled um and that that happens quite frequently that person can lose a job and not um not recover or get the same salary that they that they once got i mean we all know about divorce there's a tremendous amount of that And as a career coach, I'm often at the receiving end of so many women. Um, I sometimes feel like a psychiatrist more than a career coach who have had a misfortune. And you know, if I had a dollar for every woman who has said, "I wish I never left the workforce." That's a very impactful statement. And you also wonder too if the younger generation will will listen to that. And you do make a point in your book that the 
the younger millennial generation has a different concept of work and what it means to work and almost by nature tend to be a little bit more flexible. Yeah, they're more flexible and they're asking for flexibility, you know, right at the get go. And they they saw their parents um, working crazy hours and and what the impact of that, you know, was on the family. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of millennials are, um, are you know, have a, a healthier view of work. But what's really so surprising to me is that I see the millennials doing the same thing that their mothers did, um, leaving the workforce when they have children. And, you know, with the with the crash um, and the you know economic downturn, and the um, I, I just don't understand how you know they've seen that they've seen their parents lose jobs and not recover. I, I but it's what what it is is that 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 motherhood, the caregiving, um, is a very strong force, and and then as you said before. People often think, well, you know, childcare is so expensive. You know, does it really make sense for me, you know, to um, take that big chunk and whatever I'm left with isn't enough? But actually, childcare is less expensive than staying out of the workforce. I think that's a fact that stuck with me the most reading your book because, like I said, that's an argument I've heard a lot in the last few years, as my friends start having kids, as family starts having kids. And I've known people who've made the choice to leave the workforce and other people who are just trying to make it flexible, trying to make it work because they understand that losing that earning power is a big deal down the road. Yeah, very hard to recoup. There's a lot of advice for for mothers, for, for caregivers. What advice for women who aren't in those roles, the, they're on their own, can they take away from this book or can they find in this book? Well, I think that, um, you know, women who don't have children would be quick to say, well, this book isn't for me. Um, but when we say the word caregiver, um, most of the time we think about children. Um, but even if you don't have children, you're going to be a caregiver at some point um, to your own parents um, and if you're married to a, a spouse's parents, because women are have the lion's share of caregiving for for children and also um, aging parents, even their in-laws who are aging parents. So it really is a book for everybody because we are all going to face caregiving, with, you, know, you know, no matter what choice we make about children. And I think in the end, too, it's really just a book full of very sound financial advice. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just saying, you know, open your eyes, be aware of what can happen, know that you have a long retirement, um, you know, 30 years or more that you have to think about. Um, there are lots of life you never knows. Um, you, it, it's just better safe than sorry. So the book is Ambition Redefined, Why the Corner Office Doesn't Work for Every Woman and What to Do Instead. Catherine Solman, thank you so much for some really great advice, which I hope people out there will listen to. Thank you for having me. 
Let's stick with this theme of empowering women and talk about the latest project from Robin Pace. With her Edge of Yesterday series, Pace tackles the lack of women in science, tech, engineering, and math jobs by getting girls interested in those STEM subjects in a non-traditional way. She does that by wrapping them in the type of novels middle school girls like to read. We recently spoke about how important her mission is. I love this concept of mixing humanities and the sciences. What first led you down this writing path? It's really been kind of a lifelong interest of mine. I I am always curious. I've always been curious about science and technology and engineering, you know, the STEM subjects, but I'm I'm just not that math person. <laughs> so I thought at one point in my in my young childhood, you know, like around 4th grade that I would be love to be an astronomer. But then math got too hard, so so I changed I changed fields because I've also always loved literature and writing and history and um, art and music and all of those great things. So this was my attempt to combine all of those things, and and um, the timing couldn't be more perfect because you know, lo and behold, I'm not the only one who's trying to do this. So. And and the stats regarding STEM are staggering. Um, I have a couple here right in front of me. 74% of girls report an interest in science, technology, engineering, and math. But then only 13% express an interest as their top career choice, which means a lot of these jobs go unfilled. How do you hope your book helps to fill that gap? Well, I, I've aimed this book, and, and I have this female protagonist, Charlie Morton, um, on purpose, and um, because we need more girls in STEM fields and, and STEAM fields, I might add. So STEAM is arts and design integrated into STEM, which I, I think it's artificial to separate them out because if we didn't have STEAM, we wouldn't have Apple or, you know, the art and design and engineering are all go together in those areas. But um, I've aimed this at middle school aged girls in particular, although boys seem to like it too. So that's a great thing. Yay. Um, the reason is because there's a steep drop-off in, in interest in STEM fields at, in middle school for a variety of reasons, and it, it, it's you know it's not easy to tease out what are the you know you know what what the main reasons are and what they're not. But some of them include the fact that um, you know that's when boys show, even though girls have equal aptitude for boys in in those subjects, boys tend to show more interest in. Um, and grab onto those ideas more quickly. And of course, we're generalizing here, so there are always boys who are more interested in humanities or, or English or reading. Um, but generally speaking, and so there's there's kind of a drop off. And and the way our school system works, because we separate out things like you, you know you have uh, English at nine o'clock, and at ten o'clock there's chemistry, and eleven o'clock there's math, and twelve o'clock there's Spanish or whatever language you're taking in school, they they don't seem to go together, which is not true in real life. And so I think it's a little bit artificial. So I think we need to do a better job at at, at combining these subjects in ways that show how one feeds into the other, um, both in to make meaning of it in in school, but more importantly, so so young kids can young teens can make meaning of it in their own lives and see how purposeful it is. And then you get to the subject, this question of growth mindset. I don't know if you're familiar with Carol Dweck's research at Stanford, but I had the opportunity to interview interview Dr. Dweck last year for a, a, an article on the subject. 
of growth mindset, and she started studying math um, aptitude in, in third graders in New York City when she was at Columbia, and, and her work has just grown exponentially since then. But it, it also seems that we don't create the conditions in school and at home to encourage this growth mindset, which means no matter where you are on the spectrum or the scale of, of, of getting a subject, you can always do a little better. So how do you provide that little nudge, that little grain of encouragement? And so in, in my concept or in my hope for <laughs> Edge of Yesterday and Da Vinci's Way, this is a way through story of getting kids engaged, getting their imagination going, but also helping them to be more curious. And I believe, you know, Leonardo da Vinci is um, sort of the main focus of these first two books that I've written, this time travel adventure. And um, he was, the lesson we can learn from Leonardo, I I believe, and and, um, I've studied him now for about 20 years, is that we can't all be brilliant geniuses in art and design, but we can all be more curious. So asking that next question, not just solving a math equation, but saying, well, what, what, what does this mean, or what could I do better, or what comes after this, um, it, it is really critical to expanding the field of interest and knowledge and STEM and STEAM and and what, in my equation, Leonardo da Vinci's key to success is called mastery. So in in the context of Edge of Yesterday and and da Vinci's Way, mastery is math, art, science, technology, engineering, reflection, which are those social-emotional skills that are teachable, but that we don't seem to focus on in schools, although that's starting to change, and through the yarns of storytelling. So stories are really intrinsic to who we are. We've been telling them around fires, campfires, and since cave times or earlier, as far as we know, and it's how we transmit knowledge from generation to generation, whether that's an actual campfire or through the, the blaze of a screen on, on a, a teen's smartphone. For for lack of a better word, uh, Leonardo da Vinci seems like a really old school example for, to, for trying to get kids really interested in all these subjects. What is it in particular about him that drew you to using him as the as the person that your protagonist is kind of obsessed with? Yes, he is. Well, it it started when my my kids. I have three children. They're they're all now in their twenties and thirties. But when they were sort of in those preteen years, and I was the soccer pool, you know, carpool mom driving the kids and their friends to soccer matches or band practice in school and whatever. I would, you know, you're invisible when you're in that driver's seat and they're all <laughs> talking. Um, I would listen in on their conversations, and they were all talking about everything they wanted to be when they grew up, which is they wanted to be a star soccer player and a diplomat and a dentist and, and, and. And so it really sparked my curiosity. Was there ever a moment in time where people were encouraged to be and, 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 you know, today we look at, at specialists and the more you specialize, the more opportunities to, to, to big success. And, um, so I, I just, it was a thought exercise, a thought experiment, really. And Leonardo, of course, sprang to mind because he was the ultimate Renaissance genius. He was an artist, of course, but he was an engineer, a map maker, anatomist. He was an impresario. He used to stage these big shows for the Duke of Milan and the court of, of um, the Duke de Sforza. 
And, um, he, you know, how did he do that? So it was really like, how did he do that? <laughs> could somebody, could a Leonardo, if he was born today, become that master of all things? And so it was really an exercise. That's what Charlie, <laughs> my protagonist, wants to be, a modern-day Renaissance girl. And so she has to go back in time to interview the, the ultimate Renaissance genius himself, da Vinci. Do you think this focus on specialization is leading kids down the wrong path? I wouldn't say the wrong path, but what I would say, I'm, I'm a science writer too, uh, in addition to writing fiction. And so what I would say in working with lots of scientists through the years is they, they, um, the scientists who are such specialists um, and doing brilliant things, mind you, it's not, it's not that that isn't important, but they lack the ability to talk to people outside their field because other scientists, let's just say, take science as our example here, other scientists may have the same, be studying things from a different angle and they may use the same words, but they mean different things. So part of what I was doing and have been doing is bridging the gap even between scientific fields because the vocabulary, while they assume the words that they're using mean the same thing, they really don't. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding. And today there's more and more of a focus on interdisciplinary science, of course, um, among other things. And STEM is a perfect example of that, of how to, to combine them. I like, instead of saying just between disciplines, which is interdisciplinary, and I play with words too, Lisa, so, so this is uh, you know, my, own, my own little quirk, but it's, I, I call what we do with Edge of Yesterday transdisciplinary because it combines them instead of separating them out. And it's just a different way of learning, and I think it opens us up to more collaboration, more questions, more creativity more of those things that really Leonardo da Vinci, in my mind anyway, and in Charlie's mind, it epitomizes. What would be a concrete example of what a parent could do? Well, for example, parents can, uh, this is kind of, big, of a big one in my book, parents can really tune into what the kids are interested in. That's what I was doing when I was driving the carpool for example, as opposed to what we think they should be interested in. And I think it's often hard to get ourselves out of the way as parents to really focus on, hey, you know, my, my child has been talking about wanting to be a neurosurgeon, but I think he ought to be an engineer or she ought to be an engineer. So, um, so I'm going to focus on that. Or, or a better example might be, um, she she loves music and that's all she wants to do is play her guitar all day and that seems to me like a waste of time. She ought to be studying her her math. Um, but but what what about music and math goes together? So to parents for parents to point that out and so that that gets to the question of meter and rhythm and rhyme and harmonies and all of that stuff. So there is a mathematical basis to music, of course. But how do you then get them to your child? to want to look at this in a different way and to kind of put it all together in, in ways that, that go beyond just, you know, strumming the guitar and playing the latest. I know earlier uh, we mentioned in particular the how girls don't get involved later on, but we're really not just talking about girls. We're talking about all kids, really, and making sure that their interests in the STEM or STEAM subjects continue into adulthood, right? Of course, of course. 
we we don't want to focus ex- exclusively on girls. I think um, you know girls and boys interact in society, which is a really good thing, <laughs> and in school, um, and and I think it's how do we get them to kind of encourage each other to support in that interest and maybe not make it such a competition. You know, I'm better, you know, my brother is, is really the guy who's going to go into engineering. And so I'm going to leave that to him, but I'm, I'm better at, at, um, you know, at French. So I'm going to focus on that, but how do they, how do they boys and girls together sort of explore things further in any dimension? So one of the things that I'm doing, I'm, I'm talking to, um, these partners at at a um, mind brain um, learning research center um, to design a research study um, to investigate how or whether Edge of Yesterday helps those kids who are not so interested in STEM subjects to become more interested because this is very transdisciplinary and I don't I don't steer away from the the science and technology and engineering in the book or the two books that are out now, um, and vice versa. How do those kids who are already sort of STEM interested, does it encourage them to get more interested in art or music or history or language learning? And, you know, what does that look like? And, and how could we use this to expand that further? So if these books were around when you were a kid, do you think you would have gone on and become that astronomer you wanted to be? I might have, you know, because one of the things that um, Charlie teaches me anyway <laughs> is that you have to, uh, you, you might be interested in something, but you also have to go further than just, oh, this looks interesting, and I look through a telescope, and there's Mars. Oh, wow, that's cool. But to say, you know, where in the sky is Mars, or can we plot that, and what does that look like? And what would Mars have looked like 500 years ago? Where would it would it be the same place in the sky it is now? You know, just a lot of questions. Uh, well, I might have I might have had the wherewithal to uh, to follow Charlie's path and ask those deeper questions in that that for sure. I you know I I can only guess what what didn't happen, but in an alternate reality, let's say, <laughs> I, I certainly would have loved to have done that. The, it's the Edge of Yesterday series. The newest book is uh, Da Vinci's Way. Robin Pace, thank you so much for talking to us about a subject that I think you're very passionate about, and I think a lot of people out there will kind of catch the enthusiasm that you have for it. Thank you, Lisa. And I, I just would like to add, I have a website. It's www.edgeofyesterday.com. And what edgeofyesterday.com does, it's, it's all about learning through stories. So it's a platform for interactive and engaged learning. We have quizzes there and games and more stories that are not necessarily focused on the book but grow out of these, these books and the whole time travel adventure. And there's also a section there called Make the Story Yours, which I'm developing out and I hope will become a kind of teen publishing platform in many media, not just writing, but we have a... We have photography there. We, we, I, I have some music that uh, uh, kids are writing. So it's a place for teens to really express their creativity, and eventually we hope to build out a community there so that these kids who are curious and passionate and doing creative things can gather and, uh, and, and enjoy each other's company and spur each other further into STEM and STEAM learning. It's really cool. It's not just books. It's a whole online community. Exactly, exactly. And it's only going to grow. So I'm really excited about that. And I, I, I would love teens to check it out. And I'd love them to become involved. 
and, um, and read the books, of course. Class dismissed. I know I'm walking away a little smarter. Hopefully you are too. Next week, we continue our nonfiction kick with a tour through Cuba with former BBC Havana correspondent Sarah Rainsford. Until then, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.